Hey, Mac, when does deer season start? Well, if you want the best deer herd possible, Lanny, you need to start right now. Right now. That's, That's why right. we're starting our promotion. I mean, we've got a deer season starts now promotion on plantbiologic.com where you can pick up our Game Changer soybeans, our forage soybeans, and our spring protein peas. While you're there, you might as well go ahead and pick up some brassicas like our final forage and winter bowls. Yeah, stock up for the cool season planting right now. Listeners to the GK Podcast, if you use coupon code GKPOD, you can save an additional 10% off our entire selection of warm season, cool season, and clover food plot seed. Get started today and visit plantbiologic.com for an unforgettable fall. Hi, I'm Jeff Foxworthy, and welcome to Gamekeeper Podcast. If you want to learn more about farming for wildlife and habitat management, then buddy, you are in the right place. Join the Gamekeeper crew direct from Mossy Oak Land Enhancement Studio as they discuss the latest wildlife and habitat management practices, news, and of course, hunting. There's no telling what you'll learn, but I'm going to tell you, I bet it's interesting. Enjoy. We're live in three, two, one. All right, thank you, Richie, and welcome everybody to West Point, Mississippi. We got a excited crowd here. Yeah, I'm looking at Lanny's got a twinkle in his eye. He's been cleaning up the building I'm all telling spring day. Time. We are already getting ready for turkey season. So you spring got, cleaning. At, at the he end did. of deer season, you got to get all your stuff in order. You know what I mean? So you can jump back in yeah. the spring. I think I moved into my house here, uh, my new house in Starville, seven or eight years ago, and there's still boxes. And let me come. You know, Lanny just completely changed this building and. Like four hours. No, no, it's been three days. Well, I've been wide open for three days. It takes a lot to change Dudley, though. I mean, yeah. you know, but you, yeah. look, the spring cleaning, it looks good. I'm, pretty, I'm glad cave. that you got excited. Didn't and, somebody call it the Camo Cave? Have you heard that? No, I have not heard that. That's Cuz's uh, thing. It's the Camo Cave. cave. Yeah. Okay. So this is the mole hole. I, well, I know we're, we're, we're in the bowels <laughs> of the mole hole, as I like to refer to it. So, Dudley, you look uh, you look kind of tired, if I'm being honest here. You, He's living his best life. Well, it might be all the weight that's been melting off of me from my keto that I've been doing since January 1st. Yeah. He's taking it to the limit. Yeah. Well, that's good. Uh, so it's working? It's working. Yeah. Give, give uh, Who's the doctor you're working with? Oh, of course, Dr. Ned Miller. Who killed the biggest bull elk of the That's a season. giant bull. Yeah. Yeah. That's a giant bull. This is well the, deserving. Yeah. This is the last ditch effort to figure out my no sleeping problem. And it, it seems to be working. So he thinks it's diet related? He thinks it's like carbs and sugars. Yep. Golly. Mm-hmm. You know, I've always and heard alcohol. That, I've always heard that the best uh, remedy for lack of sleep and pregnancy prevention was hard work. Hmm. I don't know where you're going with that. Well, I'm just I'm just saying, if you work, if you do a you know a lot of manual labor, you're so you're tired, tired. Yeah. you're gonna yeah. sleep. Yeah, okay, and you're probably not gonna get pregnant either. So. Yeah, I, I know I probably won't get pregnant, so we're good there. Well, okay. Well, always, so always, always goes back to that for some reason. <laughs> well, look. All right. So you guys, you've been taking your young and something. What's been going on? Real quick. So we're supposed to call Doctor Marcus Lashley. We're going to talk fire. I'm yeah. trying to get ready to call him. Toxie wants to join us. Nobody burns more than Toxie. Loves it. Oh um, my he's gosh. a pyromaniac. I'm waiting on his text to say he's sitting still so we can call him. So oh, he's not sitting still. Y- y- yes. I mean, have you ever seen him sit still? So uh, so that's what we're doing. So in the meantime, I'm going to ask you, what have y'all been doing with your youngins? Uh, we Honestly, we've been doing more kind of soccer stuff and things like that. Not as much hunting 
but, you know, getting out, uh, did a little bit of four-wheeler riding, a little bit of target practice, just trying to make it fun. Yeah. We're, going, we're taking a step back hey. from uh, walking straight to a shooting house, and uh, that really didn't seem to be working well. So, uh, well, good. Outdoor activity. Yeah, just yeah. doing different things, going on little day hikes, things like that. So, uh, Lanny the Hayden looks like he's just wearing. I'm kind of at the opposite end of the spectrum. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you're, you're like <laughs> Hayden has hit his stride. You know, Logan's interested in being at deer camp all the time. So, uh, I've actually, uh, I, you know, I was telling somebody the other day, I'm a, I'm a, I love waterfowl. You know, it's just, I, I think I talk like a duck and walk like a duck and everything else. So I love waterfowl, and I have yet to go duck hunting this year. Uh, because of the deer hunting bug that Hayden's got. So uh, it's been fun. You know, he's also following his father's footsteps, and the the most defining factor of the season has been, Dad, I think I'm a meat hunter. (laughs) There's no doubt about that. We've had fun. He needs lots of uh, Nosler ammunition, I would expect. And it's, it's, uh, you know, he did. I'm proud of him. Of course, I'm going to talk a bunch about my kid. Yeah. Uh, but you know, this year he really got, he got to put some work in, you know, put some time in, you know, and then kind of see the fruits of his labor. So yeah, he's uh, a good kid. Cool. Yeah. Neat, neat. Yeah. And yeah. Logan's the same way, you know, he's not into the, uh, not into the, the shooting part yet. He likes his bow and kicking it at the camp, you know, and those kind of things. So it's kicking it, kicking it at the camp. That's, you know, cause this is a, this is a group of kids that, you know, we travel down there with us, so, sure. including Jason and. Jess and all of them. So, well, when I look at the uh, blood on the biologic, I think there's 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 so much going on. It's hard to call out a few things, but there's a there's a little post on Mossy Oak. Yeah. Uh, uh, that that. Uh, it touched. It touched it, your it, heart. It, it, I know it, it, it was heart. a really, really sweet little it's, post. My little girl, Blake's little girl. Yeah, yeah. rivers, yeah. all rivers. And yeah. I, I was, I was. You know, I, when I was made aware of it last night, right. my daughter was showing it to me, and it made her cry. Was that it, why it she was crying, or is that because she's reached the, your little deer limit? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's probably why she was crying, because she doesn't have any more deer to kill. Yeah. But but this little girl, River Sandler, it was a, just a priceless little reaction. It so was. I would no encourage doubt. people to go to Mossy Oak uh, Facebook or probably on Check Instagram, too, so, so, and watch that. But that was really good. Toxie's killed a deer this week. We'll ask sure him about did. that, and, uh, and and Mr. Fox killed a deer. So, oh yeah. So we're going to ask him about uh, that one as well. So I think I just got cleared for you to call. Toxie. So yeah. So I got his number. All right. <laughs> what is his number? Good afternoon. Well, there he is. That that, was, that just happened. Yeah. No, there was no ringing or anything. Well, I, I talked to him a lot. Uh, I'm I'm clairvoyant. You know that. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, Toxie, it's great for you to join us. We were uh, we we're just kind of getting started here. We were talking about blood on the biologic, and that this this episode, obviously being about burning, we couldn't do it without you. You burn. You're the biggest the power pyromaniac I know. Yeah. I mean, just talk to me like I'm in the room, Bobby. You're talking to me like I'm some kind of guest from out of town. With all that, you know, extra energy and stuff. And it's like, I'm the same old grudgy neighbor you have every day down the hall. Yeah, that that's right. Well, we wish you could be here, but we're glad you're here via <laughs> the telephone. You're excited to hear from me, I guess, because I've been in hiding for a week or so. But, I mean, we're, as it, week. it just gets out there, the, 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 the coronavirus has rolled through our entire family just by it. Thank goodness we've been able to check my mom and dad. But other than that. I don't think anybody's been immune. I have not tested positive. 
somehow I feel like I've had a mild case maybe, but I have isolated. And the great thing about isolated and not being very sick, uh, I escaped to a secure and undisclosed location over in Alabama and had a little success, so that was fun. Well, I think I saw a picture of you with a deer, a bokeh, a giant deer. That's yeah, it was it was it was a great fun experience. I, nice, I would I would big, guess your yeah good old deer. He had the he definitely had the record brow times for anything I've ever killed. Yeah, you did. I would think your batting average is pretty good considering uh, you've probably been mainly just slipping around squirrel hunting and putting other people out all season. So that's a pretty good accomplishment. Uh, well, that's, that's kind. That's kind of dirty, but yeah, I hadn't. Hadn't really shot anything till this week, and I killed a, a doe and a buck, and so uh, that was good. Well, I tell you what, anytime you know, I'm, 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 I'm. I mean, I love big, big bucks, and big horns, and you know, a trophy and all that. I mean, I do love it; it's exhilarating, whatever. But my, my, my base joy is just running air through one, like you're supposed to. That's that's fun, and I mean. Kind of got it from good old Bob Dixon. God rest his soul. He he always really loved running air through something with a you know a big body buck or something, and so that that was fun. And then lay my hands on him, make a good shot. That was you know, the older you get, the more you'll appreciate it. I told mm-hmm. you that. Mm-hmm. That, that was a, it was a great deer. So yeah. congratulations on that. But what we'd really like to hear about is uh, last yeah. week you we did a podcast and we said, hey, Toxie's not here because he's taking Mr. Fox. Could you tell us about that afternoon? You know, yeah, you're talking about batting averages, Dudley. Uh, that's <laughs> his second time to go all year. He's really struggled with being able to, uh, you know, have enough energy to, you know, even get out and get in the car, you know. Uh, but um, he had, he kind of talked about it, and then he gets where he's not feeling good. So, and he talked himself out of it. But I saw the the temperature was going to rise up, and I, um, you know, we've had cameras out checking them, and uh, there's one of those y'all know the place. I won't call it, but there's a lot of clover. We planted um, probably I, I've been I've been crowing about this all fall. The best investment I've made on my properties in the last years has been. 100% above anything else, non-typical clover. And we planted about, gosh, 30 acres worth in some of those big fields on this place. And this year, I didn't, uh, I'm not trying to cheat us out of any seed sales, but I didn't plant a thing. I sprayed it, and then when we got ready for fall, we just fertilized it like with a good clover formula. And it just, you know, it, it lasted all summer, exploded, and... I mean, it is ridiculous how many deer are out there. And it just occurred to me, you know, over anything else we sell or maybe anybody else is that that is given, you know, your critters have to get up and eat every day. And I know we plant beans or we plant corn or we plant brassicas or radishes or, you know, but those only have a window and those are great, but there's nothing as a baseline of having a great, like, year-over-year stand of clover, especially one as nutritious and as vigorous growing as the non-typical. And I'm telling you, I'm getting as much in the ground. Still, at this late date, we're, we're late planting some, but that place has got so many deer on it, and it has been without fail clover on it for 15, 16 months straight now. 
This has all been spring, all summer, all fall. It's crazy the difference in the the deer, the amount of deer, the health of the deer. Uh, anyway, I won't go on and on about it, but it is, in my humble opinion, the best product that we have. I know we got a lot of great products, but uh, if people out there can do it and they have it, I will say it will last longer through our summers in a clay soil than a sandy soil that I've experienced because that clay soil will retain that moisture better. But uh, I've got some places going on five years just like that now. So, but was, clearly, Mr. Fox killed that deer. It was a beautiful 11 point, and it was in a big field of non typical clover. This really has been a good year for clover, too. I mean, it, uh, it's yes, just it has. the it absolute has. perfect but, conditions for but, clover. So let's go. I, I want to but go it, back to his buck. But he, how, was, how did the hunt roll out? And uh, I, when I, know, the pictures he, I saw, uh, he looked so excited. You had, uh, you know, Bobby, you had. Uh, Made arrangements for me to have uh, a really nice shooting house. Uh, you can talk about it if you want. Yeah, the, red, the redneck, but, uh, yeah. And uh, we put it somewhere specifically for him and kind of saved it for if he could go. And it was just like he went, you know, he had a, his little baggy take. And mm-hmm. Mama had, had a, like a Ziploc of cut-off apples and some muffins she made for him and some other snacks and bottle of water. You know, she saves the old bottle and fills them with water for a water bottle. <laughs> and so she had his whole snack thing prepared for him. So he was all business, and he was comfortable, and, you know, it was a warmer afternoon. But deer started moving, and I saw one buck. I almost let him shoot. It was a seven-point. Probably needs to be killed, but he wasn't real low. But I was thinking, I don't care what my dad shoots. And he was like, nah, know. let's wait, you know. And so this deer came out, and I studied him. as like, you know, that's a great deer, like, genetically, but I swear, I mean, first of all, I think he's pretty old. And second of all, I could care less. My 91-year-old dad, he's got to look at him. He's like, yeah, but the deer, it was like 300 yards, and I was like, you don't need to try that shot. And he just started feeding closer and closer and closer. He really had never even almost didn't pick his head up. He was just steady wearing that clover out, and he got about 125 yards and finally got broadside. Oh, my God. And, you know – as, as, as feeble as he is and as tough as he has and stuff, he was, he had it cap around backwards and he was all business. And when I said, take your time, take your time, when you're boom, I mean, <laughs> and then, you better, hey, well, you better have your fingers in your ears when you tell him to shoot. And um, I thought he hit the deer, but it was walking off. And then, for about 10 seconds walking off and I was like man my heart sank man they don't do that when you hit them it just all of a sudden out of the blue the deer just took off running like someone's second with a cattle prize and I'm thinking to myself you know what I bet he hit that deer pretty good and all of a sudden the deer felt like you know he felt the, the throes of losing it and sure enough I waited about 30 minutes and I eased down there where the deer went out of the field and I found a little blood and I turned my light up to go start trailing there he was laying right there I'll be. And he center, he center punched him right in the shoulder. Hmm. Everybody loves that. So, anyway, it was. On the board. That, that's just that's so what cool. Yeah. Well, yeah, what was cool about it is I called my mom so she wouldn't worry about it. She worries to death about him. If we're five minutes late, I called Diane, let her know I'm going to be late. I'm tracking her deer for daddy. I'm going to, you know, let him sit there for 30 minutes and while I look for him. And then, so daddy, he got his, all his stuff out. And mom, he brought him and he had water bottle and he had 
he ate muffins and actually <laughs> he had made like four muffins. So there was one muffin for him and one for me and two for me to take home for like Diane to have. And by the time I got back from looking for the deer, he'd eaten like all but one of the muffins. <laughs> he'd eaten all his apples. He'd eaten the banana. And he was just as comfortable. And, you know, usually he's kind of itching to get on back and get on home. And he was just as – the moon was out, and it was just, you know, it was a very comfortable day. We had a great evening together. It will be, you know, one of those That's things. Awesome. It was just one of those things. God smiled on him. And it was a beautiful, super chocolate horn, dark deer. Uh, All probably the, I'm gonna say he was a five five or six year old deer. Oh my goodness! What well, be a beautiful deer and just a great yeah. Man. Oh, it was, and it, I think honestly, I think that food is just running out all over the place in this late winter, and we're just you know I'm looking at the trail cam pictures I'm getting out there, and it's just more and more and more deer. In fact, just lately, some more bucks I hadn't seen all year. So it just tells you what you can do. Uh, yeah. You know, the, the great thing about clover is they eat it and it comes back and they eat it and it comes back and they eat it and it comes back and it just keeps on feeding them. Well, look, that, that's a great story. And sure. I think we're probably going to have some more questions for you after, but we need to call Marcus Lashley. He's going to be wondering why we hadn't called him. So if you don't mind, Toxie, I'm going to get Lanny to call and you should be able to hear everything. Welcome to Verizon Wireless. Uh-huh. Your call cannot be completed as dialed. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> all right richie now i love mr fox's hunting sack it yeah. was sitting in vandy's all it's an old white canvas welcome to verizon wireless y'all didn't blow the horn for me <laughs> There you go. Uh, oh. <laughs> Welcome to Verizon Wireless. Your call cannot be completed as dialed. Okay, let's call Toxie. I've and, got Toxie. You got Toxie. Okay. All right. <laughs> Three. <laughs> got him. Hello? Marcus Lashley. Can you hear so me? How's it going? Well, it, yes, I don't I know. I can hear you this time. <laughs> I, don't, I think we made it. <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure how it's going, Marcus. It's been it's been a a challenge to make the phones work today. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Uh, the last <laughs> time it rang, I couldn't hear anything. Well, look, I apologize. We're late calling you, but we are so excited to have Dr. Marcus Lashley. Oh yeah. He's Doctor Disturbance. This guy is the is a pyromaniac from way back, and we've enjoyed oh, having yeah, you. But, uh, but here on the podcast, uh, Marcus, and we know a lot of the same people. Everybody just says so a lot of nice things about you. On the phone with us also is Toxie. Now he's a he's a pyromaniac himself, and mm-hmm. we couldn't do a burning oh, podcast yeah. hey, Mar- without him. Marcus is a pyroscientist. <laughs> <laughs> and researcher and very very knowledgeable i am a pyromaniac <laughs> yep there you go yeah. there you go well i, I, I certainly I appreciate the the introduction and the kind words and uh I, i'll say that i i think i also identify as a pyromaniac as well but i do some <laughs> and, science on it <laughs> and just a plain old maniac yep. i think yeah yeah and yeah. i'll everybody you know, loves a good love fire, hunting you know yeah I love hunting and fishing, and fire helps you do some of that sometimes. So, uh, well, Marcus, uh, at least uh, the only, enjoy the spool. The only reason the only reason I'm on the phone is because we don't have conditions to burn today. Otherwise, yeah, just, <laughs> that's it without me. Oh, we could have had some good footage if it was a good burn day. 
sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, you know, Marcus, it happens. It happens every year. We have great burn days in December, January, and I just don't get off my duster and go do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's just hunting season still, and you find an excuse. And then, you know, we roll around here in like like January first of February, schedule a lot of it, and you can't find a good day. Yeah. It never it never dies out, or you know, we have to have perfect wind conditions with right. the roads around and stuff. So mm-hmm. it is what it is. Yeah, well, I, I think that's something that that uh, sneaks up on a lot of folks. You know, the burn window seems like it's wide open, and we're going to plan it all in a couple month window, and then you realize you had two. You know, you get two or three good burn days during that two month window. It, it it's gets just difficult a, to get it all done. Yeah, it's a busy time of year too. You know, just yeah. different different things going on other than what we like to do outside. So, Marcus, yeah. what we wanted to do is we wanted to do it the, to kind of steer this thing around educating mm-hmm. people about prescribed fires and why you do yeah. it, when you do it, conditions you look for, the equipment that they're going to need. We're just going to ask some basic questions. So if a guy had a lease or has his own property, and he, he the, we're going to encourage them to learn how they and why they need to burn. And that's what we'd yeah. like for you to kind of just kick this thing off with uh, your thoughts on the importance of burning. Yeah, I think uh, that that's a great place to start. Fire is is a, a really uh, effective and and it can be really cheap management tool to to enhance habitat for the wildlife species that we all know and love and pursue. And I, I think for that reason, it's a really important one for folks, especially in the South, to learn about. The reason it, it's so important is because historically in our systems, especially the pine systems, the open pine systems in the South, but also in the upland hardwoods and, and uh, certainly in the prairie, it, it has been a primary force in those systems. And a lot of the wildlife species and the plant species in those have adaptations that benefit from, from having fire around. And in some cases, even promote fire being around. So if you, if you, really want to get down to it and why you want to burn, I think folks really need to, to sit down and think about what do they want to get from it? You know, what is your objective? What Are you interested in improving deer forage? Or are you interested in improving fawn survival? You know, or is your focus on nesting hens? Yeah, they uh, being successful. Do you want to hear bob whites or have a huntable population of bob whites? You know, those those kinds of questions are the first things that people really need to, to think about in detail, and it can change uh, the planning process and how you're actually going to apply fire on, on the landscape. Hey, this is Bobby Cole. One of my favorite things to do as a gamekeeper is planting food plots for my deer. My Onyx app helps me to determine the exact plot size to make sure I'm applying the right rate of biologic seed and fertilizer. Try it out for yourself and see. Use coupon code MOSSYOAK to save 20% on your subscription to Onyx. What, what would you say is the, in the, the vast majority of people, what's the, their reasoning for burning, Marcus? Well, the people that I come in contact with that are burning, the, the majority of the burning that's being done, I guess, of, of land managers that I come in contact with, they're, they're generally burning for quail. 
if if folks want quail and they want a huntable population, then you can't have it without that. And unless you're just you know releasing pen raised birds uh, to hunt. So in terms of a wild population, that that is the quintessential fire dependent species. If we take fire out of the system, we don't have quail. So uh, that is very common, but it's not common across you know the, a wide range because there's only a few places where we still have a holdout at, where there's a lot of quail. A lot of Florida, you know, has has populations of quail, but particularly the Red Hills, it in, starts in the Panhandle and goes up north into uh, southwest Georgia. There's still a you know stronghold and open pine there where fire has been a part of that landscape uh, continuously all the way up until now, right. and there's still really good wild quail numbers there. Uh, there's a couple of places that you might find them in. Uh, the prairie region where, where you guys are at, uh, you know, the black belt through Alabama and Mississippi, but they're less common. And of course you'll, you'll hear or have a, a few quail here and there that have been maintained through forest disturbance across the landscape. But the decline in fire has been one, one major, uh, problem for that species. So of course, if you get out into the, the West, uh, you know, quail populations are variable across that landscape, and and uh, there are certainly some places that have have uh, still really good populations. But when the people that are using fire most actively are those that are really keen on having huntable populations of wild quail. Mm-hmm. So the people that that contact me mostly uh, that are interested in starting to use fire, or they're using it some, and they just want to enhance the use. They, they are uh, people generally that want more deer and turkeys. So both species I, I get contacted commonly about. And in general, those people either haven't used fire, but they're interested or they're using it some and they just want to take it to another level as opposed to the quail community where they had to have been using fire, you know, for or they wouldn't have any quail to begin with. So, so kind talk- of a, a different place where they're at. Takshi, when when you burn, what in your mind? What are you burning for? Um, uh, I primarily turkey pole. You know, turkey pole. Favorite pole. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, and honestly, you want the best spring habitat for all of them to have better hunting potentially. Obviously, if mm-hmm. you have, and Marcus back that up. If you have a preferred nesting. Uh, area, especially year over year over time, then you tend to attract hens to that. Especially, I think, if they've been successful, they tend to kind of go back to that. Mm-hmm. And so if you attract them, you're going to attract the gobblers too. And I, you know, for me, uh, I guess my biggest reason is I, I kind of live in in fear and anticipation both of having a good hatch. Because, you know, uh, I say it all the time. People talk about it. I, I just remember like when the kids were little and I, I traveled and hunted. I said, Dad, what's the best state to turkey hunt in? Is it Kansas? Is it Texas? Is it Missouri? Is it, where is it? I said, yeah, there's no one state, son. And they kind of mm-hmm. looked at me. No, I thought it was like some magical state where it was so much better. I said, it's a place to place thing. Let me just tell you this. You can have the most heralded, you know, super, uh, put up on a pedestal, big lodge, tons of land historic turkey place in America. And if you don't have good hatches, it's going to stink. 
Mm-hmm. If you have just a piece of scrubby old cutover, uh, cheap lease from a timber company and you hatch a bunch of turkeys, you're going to have marvelous turkey hunting. Mm-hmm. It's that simple. I mean, if you don't hatch them, it's going downhill and soon. And yeah. so it all revolves around Dr. Hurts is the one that taught me too. You know, the mortality of a one and a half year old buck to become a, say, five year old is, I don't know, uh, like 30, 40 percent. Mm-hmm. The just natural mortality of, of, a, of my whitetail. So, but the, the mortality is what he described to me, Marcus, of a Jake. No, excuse me. The mortality of a 14 days old hope that has just learned to fly to become a two-year-old, which is what you're after. That's big mm-hmm. enough to harvest and hunt. The mortality rate's like two or three or four percent, something like that. Yeah. So at my point, if you can just, you know, deer management and getting them to that age, you know, and then you've got also the whole, the cross factor of like genetics at that age and Mm-hmm. You know, what's a shooter and all that stuff. You know, if you raise a turkey and he's a two-year-old long beard and he's gobbling and strutting, that's your trophy. You know, we're yeah, managing exactly. to get 12-inch beards or something. So I'm just kind of in a roundabout way getting to the point that if you can hatch them and get them to 14 days old, you have pretty much, pretty much won the battle. Deer yeah. management is fairly more complicated to get what you're yeah. after. Yeah, I agree with that. And, I think a, a good thing to emphasize with what you were just saying is that first two weeks of life, you know, the hen obviously has to hatch the eggs, but the mortality of the the nest uh, oh. is, a, is not as important as once those things have hatched and they're little bumblebees for that first, especially 10 days of life. Those right. things... They have almost no chance of surviving, even when everything is great. I mean, it's just, you know, they, they're just made to die. And that yeah. that's where the bottleneck is on populations a lot of times is when they are really young after they've hatched. And we've kind of moved past, you know, that the hen, if she lost her nest, especially early, she has the opportunity to re-nest and uh, can do that. But once they've hatched, you know, we're kind of all in on that one and, and uh, the mortality rate when they're in that first couple of weeks of life is just, uh, it's abysmal, even when things are really good. So that, I think that, that yeah, that's a good point. That's somewhere that you, that everybody, if you're trying to manage for turkeys, you can make a big impact is even a few percent change and, and, oh, wow. uh, pulse survival is substantial, <laughs> you know, cumulatively for the population. Mm. Well, I like absolutely. I mean, you look at well, you look at the numbers. If we're if we're uh, you know, and I'm just going back on the days of Doctor Hurst. He was saying, and that's kind of the worst I've heard. But he used to quote, you know, if we're lucky, two percent of the eggs laid will actually make it to be like a, a two year old gobbler. Two percent yeah. if we're lucky. Mm-hmm. And so, look at you. If you say it sounds like that's not much, but you you save two of those, you know, and that's four percent. You double. Yeah. <laughs> you double the output. Just by yeah. percentage, you know. Yeah, you're exactly right. And you know, let, let's let's think about also what that means for for a you know that little bitty turkey. You know, we're we're trying to get a particular type of vegetation structure where 
we're we're talking about below knee height essentially they need a lot of bare ground that they can run around and then the vegetation that's up about knee tall is providing overhead cover to keep you know keep them uh from being vulnerable to predators or exposure that's something that people probably don't think about as much but it doesn't take that much exposure to temperature or wind or whatever but before that thing's really vulnerable so that type of vegetation structure is critical and that's provided in a place that has been recently burned that's getting a lot of sunlight through the canopy or in a, a an old field scenario or or uh, some sort of native vegetation opening that is being managed frequently with fire that's where that structure occurs it isn't in the the you know the improved uh, pasture grass that that you've got for your cattle or whatever you know you'll right. typically see hens with their poults around the edges of those things and that's because that's where the plants that are providing that kind of structure they're all relegated to the edges of most of our openings and uh right. frankly don't exist that much in a lot of our forests yeah would you say too marcus that another benefit is and i, I don't do it for this i think but there's there's so many converging reasons why I love to burn. Um, mm-hmm. Much less, I just I just love what it does to the you know to the land. But wouldn't you say there's a higher chance of better quality like forage and bugs and even the mm-hmm. tender sprouts for a hen to have better nutrition and be in better shape to nest? And I mean, I've learned that too. If they're in better nutritional health condition. They have mm-hmm. a much better chance of having more eggs and more successful plants, don't you think? Oh yeah, there, there's no question about that. And you know that that's what people really need to to think about when we're talking about using a practice like fire to enhance habitat. That has a cumulative effect on the animal's biology throughout its life, and that go you know that that applies at every life stage and when you start adding up all those percentages it starts to have real big impacts on the population yeah. even though it may be one percent here and there over the you know the the lifespan of that that population those individuals that can add up really quickly and it you know when you're addressing habitat concerns and providing high quality nutrition the hands are in better condition potentially have a you know better conditions or better choices to nest in their nest is harder to find they potentially lay more eggs and are more successful and then poults are more i mean you know we can just add it up those things really start to turn into big changes in the amount of turkeys that are that make it to adults and you just don't get that if you focus on other things now you can do other things to supplement that but you know addressing habitat with practice like fire in particular for turkeys that has this cumulative effect it you know it's addressing all of the issues the nutrition the predation you know you're addressing everything all at once and uh you know that that's why we really commonly are are screaming that from the rooftops Right. It's, you know, using these practices can have all of these different positive benefits on uh, several of the species that we want to manage all at once. And we can manipulate fire in different ways to target some of those things. But we generally can address many issues with several species at the same time. 
Hey, Marcus, I'm going to jump in here real yeah. quick. Lanny is just waving his hand over here. He's got a question. So okay. let, let's see what he's got. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I think the, uh, I guess an observation from being around, you know, and, and seeing fire uh, specifically in the Southeast mm-hmm. for years is, is uh, look, I love turkeys and I love wildlife. Yeah. Obviously, uh, I, I think more than most people. But the one of the coolest thing about fire is the what I would call the exponential factor of it. So can you speak a little bit to maybe – what fire can do for timber stand improvement or, you know, other uh, benefits because uh, there, there just seems to be so many. Yeah. I, that's one of the reasons that I love fire and, and, you know, it's fun. It's that practice. It's just fun to implement once you, you get, uh, you know, the experience to, to go and do that safely, man, it's just fun to do. A lot of people that I work with have gotten to that point where they're doing that as their pastime. So that's that's one benefit. Another thing that that uh, I think Toxie said earlier was the aesthetics of it. You know, there's a lot of of uh, aesthetically pleasing traits about a recently burned open pine stand. You know, it just looks pretty. Mm-hmm. A lot of flowering things. The same thing with with uh, your, your prairie grasses or whatever. Uh, you know, there's a lot of aesthetic value. There can be some financial value if you're using it, particularly in pines, to uh, enhance growth. And then what I think about the majority of the time is how how many different ways it can influence positively for the species we want, the habitat. And the things that you generally are going to expect to occur uh, following fires, providing there's enough sunlight reaching the, the forest floor, is you, you generally increase the carrying capacity for deer substantially. So that's a nutritional benefit. Another thing that, that, that can influence is how likely a fawn is to make it uh, through predation. So it reduces risk. Uh, we have a couple of studies now to indicate that. The uh, another thing, sort of adding on to that cumulative effect, just thinking about deer, a the most nutritionally demanding life stage of the animal is in the female when she's lactating to feed that deer, that that you know the uh, fawn. Um, so we're also enhancing at the same time that we're enhancing fawning cover, we're also providing better nutrition, which allows her to more easily feed it. So, uh, you know, we have this cumulative effect. It also can be timed really well to coincide with antler growth so that bucks can reach peak uh, antler uh, characteristics. So we have this cumulative effect that you could have uh, on deer in that way. With turkeys, we have a very similar effect where you tend to get more high-quality forbs that can enhance nutrition from vegetation. Those also uh, lead typically to more seeds and more uh, insects that are available. That can be particularly important for that that brood that is growing really rapidly and needs high protein. So we see those same cumulative effects. And, of course, we've already talked about the improved nesting success and the improved uh, survival of poults from predation as well that come along with that improved structure. It's very similar. Uh, We might slightly tweak the way that we use fire, but it's very similar in the cumulative effects that it can have on quail. 
and it's probably they're even more sensitive to it because they uh, some of their life stages are much more sensitive to the structure in particular that comes with with frequent fire. And that, it kills. Was ticks. that a good summary? Of, yeah, that's a great one. Yeah. <laughs> and it kills ticks. Okay. I mean, why would you not want to be burning? <laughs> oh my God! Yeah, that you know the 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 uh, red meat allergy thing that s- popped up with set with the ticks world on really fire. got that's me. Right, yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh, that thing got me worried because if I got red meat allergy, that'd be devastating to my my career, you know, my diet, yeah, wow, my lifestyle, that. my pastime. I mean, we're just talking, you know, talking about cumulative effects. That'd Train be wreck. devastating. To, <laughs> yeah. yeah, you'd have to yeah. pick up another hobby like golf or something. <laughs> yeah, like what, what else am I going to do? <laughs> uh, so, uh, yeah, that, yeah, that's, that's something. In it, yeah. So Margaret- that, that's something that I've worked on because of that is uh, looking at even – variation in the timing of fire within the year can have substantially different effects on the tick abundance in the landscape. So that's really interesting. That's kind of leading to one of my questions, which is mm-hmm. um, I'm going to let's, let's, let's just say uh, you're in a big hunting camp and uh, mm-hmm. you know, traditionally uh you know, burning is, has kind of come back into popularity. I, I would say in the last 20 years with private landowners, um, mm-hmm. they've been doing it on public for a while, but it seems like they, it's all centered around the end of January and February and that's it. Well, yeah. we all know that before we came over here, maybe even before the natives were burning, um, it, burns happened year round. So um, if you were to say, you know, put it in ratio form or percentage, what, uh, how would you burn if, if you were, you know, focusing on deer and turkey, but overall diversity, what, what time of year would you be burning your place? Like, would you do 60% of it in January and February and March and 40 in the, in the summer? How would you do that? Uh, that that's a great question. What? <laughs> The way I normally think about it is wait for a good burn day and then burn on that one. Okay. Uh, Distribute them through the year that way, and you'll end up being really diverse because, and and it'll even change from year to year because you'll have, you know, you'll have some years where you'll have a little patch of good weather at different times of the year, and that that gets you away from that model where you kind of paint yourself into a corner where if you don't get a couple of good burn days during the window you've set, then you don't do it at all. And I think that's important. And exactly what you're saying is true. Nature burned stuff extremely variably in comparison to the way that we do it. I actually uh, have just recently done a, a research project on this, looking at when lightning set fires occurred versus when we actually pull permits and and burn in the southeastern states and there's about a three month difference in the peak and it actually peaks in the two months it peaks in for prescribed burning uh when we pull permits is february and march and then that is june and july for lightning set fires and that's i think it was 12 states uh, that i looked over over the past 30 years so uh 
that's one thing to think about is when nature was burning things is not when we typically do. And there are some reasons why we might want to think about that. Uh, The other thing to think about is I just gave you the peak and did not even mention the variation associated with that peak. So, Dudley, what you were saying is is exactly right. That peak is about 30% of the fires occur during that two-month window, or or maybe 40%. I can't remember the number exactly, but not even half of it occurs in that two-month window. And then a huge variation associated with that where a lot of lightning-generated fires occurring later than, than June or July in the year, and a lot of it is occurring before that. So... You know, we have several uh, several other months where there's a lot of fire occurring naturally, and it did historically. And the same thing is true for the uh, you know the prescribed burning. the The difference is is the mean is shifted that three months. So you see that same sort of if you think of it like a bell shaped curve. Uh, if anybody's, I don't want to bring up statistics for any other reason, but <laughs> if you've ever taken a stats class and you saw that that normal distribution. Mm-hmm. It sort of looks like that uh, uh, with the distribution of fires. But, you know, ours are centered on February and March. And then we, we burn some a few months before that and a few months after that, but it kind of fizzles out. So what I would prefer to do is, is kind of take both of those into consideration and just think about, okay, what, what do I want to accomplish and then the strategize by moving around on the landscape to where I can accomplish that based on the, the timing that will best accomplish it. And what you end up with is you always have something to burn for some reason that meets your objectives. And that'll give you a lot more burn days to get, get a lot of that accomplished. I like it. It just seems like, uh, you know, February and early March seems to be the most convenient time to do it. There's not Mm -hmm. a bunch of tall weeds and stuff everywhere. It's not really hot, but it just makes you wonder, you know, the plant communities that come back after a burn are going to be different uh, when you burn all the time in February versus burning, uh, you know, some in the summer as well. And uh, it only makes sense to change it up a little bit. And, uh, yeah, I, but, I think you know, you're right on point. Burning every year in February is is far better than not burning at all for most of us. Yeah, but that's uh, it. If you're we, exactly right, if you if you can't do it any other time, then there's nothing wrong with that timing. And you know that that big old gobbler that we're trying to find, he's going to be strutting in the the area that was just burned, you know, within the last month. Hmm. So there are benefits that you gain from that that you wouldn't gain from other times of the year but you're right on point the diversity is key and it's because you're trying to provide several different things to the species of interest and in many cases you're trying to provide several different things to many species of interest right so you know uh, the best way to do that is to mix things up and there's not you you really can effectively manage the plant community structure with fire that's in February and March and just never doing anything other than that. You can maintain the structure that's desirable really well with that. What you really gain from moving to other times of the year for these species are you can target some specific uh, 
nutritional demands of animals, and also you can shift the community, the plant community, in terms of the composition. So which plants are actually sprouting, you can shift it to more desirable ones often if you move to later in the growing season. Gotcha. So, Marcus, will you explain uh, – so, so – what is a good burning day and then go into wind yeah. direction and how important that is. Humidity, and, and just so that we'll understand that. Sure. Yeah. I, I, I get asked this a lot and I hate to put parameters on it because it often limits people, but I'll, I'll give you some, some general things to think about the, the primary weather conditions that you're, that you want to plan around are relative humidity wind speed and temperature and mixing height. So those things are all important and typically we'd be looking at. Now, there's some other factors that folks look into uh, that that can be really important, but those are are the typical ones. And uh, most of the time with relative humidity, we're somewhere in between 30 and 50%. If you, that, that can vary a lot depending on where you're burning and what kind of substrate it is. So uh, in some systems, you might need to get below 30 before it'll even carry a fire. And in other ones, you're not going to be able to keep it inside your fire break if, if it, you know, if it's down below 30, like it's getting unsafe uh, to contain. So, uh, you know, I'm kind of giving those as loose guidelines because of that. But somewhere in that 30 to 50 is generally where, where we're doing most of the burning on in terms of relative humidity. Uh, in terms of let's see what else I say the the uh, wind speed <clears throat> that can vary as well just like everything else I hate saying it depends but it always does yes, uh, yes. but most of the time most prescriptions are going to be somewhere in the you know on the really low end we'd be at two or three miles per hour but on the high end we're more like fifteen miles per hour you can. There's some situations you might want a, a stronger wind than that, but uh, generally we're somewhere in that range. You know, five to ten is a, a pretty good thing to target most of the time in most systems uh, and, and for most objectives. Uh, that being said, I have burned in Loblolly stands that were that had been thinned in June when we were down in the the three to five mile an hour range and and that thing just kind of petered around through the stands and moved really slow it took a long time but man it was safe we didn't injure any trees and it was really effective at uh controlling the mid-story hardwoods particularly sweet gum i was pretty surprised with it uh you know it was a real low intensity meandering fire so uh yeah so wind speed definitely something that you want to consider obviously when you're when you're going through the process of getting the permit, so you do that through the, the uh, state forest service, wherever you're at, uh, what you're really getting a permit for is the smoke. And that's where the wind direction can be really important because the smoke is what is guaranteed to leave the site. And you need to make sure that, you know, you're, you're setting up things so that your, your smoke is going somewhere that's not going to cause a problem. So, uh, that's important. The same thing with the uh, the mixing height and transport winds. We're trying to get that smoke up into the atmosphere and out uh, to dissipate, so that it's not causing any problems. And generally, we're we're trying to get that above like a 1700, 1800 
feet mixed in height. So that'd be another kind of general thing. And that can vary some depending on where you're at and what, what the, uh, the ramification or the, yeah, I guess, uh, what's around you and, and what you're having to burn and all that sort of stuff. So, but, uh, those are some general guidelines. Uh, that varies, like I've said, and there are resources wherever the listeners are at. You you have information that's more local to you wherever you're at that's available on your, particularly the State Forest Service Agency's website. Uh, they'll have some some good stuff on this. Well, hey Marcus, uh, I might want to mention because my I think at least one of my sons or both of them. I actually have never done it. I've been burning for 20 plus years mm-hmm. and been around a lot of, you know, even people that taught burning classes and, and, you know, have learned by osmosis and I, I only burn on my own property. But, mm-hmm. uh, I would highly recommend people listening to this that have any interest at all look up and go to the nearest, like, it's like a one day workshop. And I think they're really, really yeah. good. I know Mississippi State has one coming up soon, but they have them all over Alabama and all over Mississippi, you know, mm-hmm. I say all over, but in most regions. And yeah, uh, but, I know, I'm sure, I'm sure Florida does some, I know Mississippi State does some, but yeah. I feel like you could look that up and easily schedule and go to one. I think anybody who's really, really interested should go to one, in my opinion. Yeah. No, you're right on point. The, the, there is training available, and I highly recommend anybody that's interested going it. I mean, frankly, the information is really interesting. You get to learn a lot about all yeah. this stuff, and, and you can yeah. use that to decide whether or not you want to move further. But you're also learning how to, to, uh, to, you know, to get all the approvals that you need and go through the whole process and what conditions you want to burn in and, and getting yeah. some experience in some of the workshops. In Mississippi, uh, they've got – they generally have them in Starkville and uh, – yeah. Hattiesburg, Hattiesburg, I believe. Yeah, yeah. that's right. So uh, they they kind of rotate between those two, and I think they do them two times a year in Mississippi, where they'll be like in early March and then maybe in August or September. Uh, so you know they they're uh, readily available to folks in both parts of the state if we just cut it in half. If you're going to burn on somebody's property that you don't own, you have to have the permit, right? That that's a good question. I, I'm not sure how there's a structure, it, but in general, it, you know, just kind of a, a broad, more broad sweeping statement across several states. You generally need to have, a, and it's a good idea to have a prescribed fire manager on site, and uh, to have a a permit, which would you would call the state agency and get. And on the day of the burn, or, or uh, some in some cases the day before is okay, and then Absolutely. you would have a a a, uh, a prescription that you've written that, that lists the parameters for which you're going to burn under for a given area that you're proposing to burn on that day. And as long as you're uh, you have, and I think you've got to get that uh, notarized. But uh, as long as you have those things, they actually afford you in many states, some protections in case stuff happens. I mean, it, it's obvious right. that it's inherently dangerous to, to burn stuff. I mean, fire is, is inherently dangerous, so, but it's also recognized that it's for the common good. And because of that, uh, many states have some sort of legislation to help protect you as long as you're, you're doing your due diligence to, to uh, you know, get, 
get all these things in order. Any place you're thinking about, I mean, you should sit down and make a list of those issues and what it takes mm-hmm. for that to be 100% safe without yeah. question. All the, all the variables we talk about, the fire breaks, the mm-hmm. story, the wind direction, especially, you know, the humidity. The, and it's what I'm just getting at is if it does not meet those criteria, don't get so antsy and try it anyway. Do not burn unless yeah. you have everything, you know, all your homework done ahead of time. Yeah, and that that's a, a a nice thing about that prescription and the point is you're you're you know you have a stand that you've already planned. Okay, this is the range of conditions that I can do this safely right. in this place, and as long as you're within that and and you've gotten a, a, that approved, then you know you're you're doing your due diligence to you know apply prescribe fire safely. I, I think this is the part, especially the the uh, the legal part of it, it, it scares a lot of people, and it, that's a barrier to getting this practice more widely used. Uh, but, you know, most people don't realize, and if you, you go and take one of these trainings, you, it'll become more obvious to you, but uh, you do have some some protections because it is viewed as a practice that's for the common good because it's such an important practice in our landscape. Yeah, that that's tough yeah. when you, you know, for example, maybe you're a leasing property and the, the landowner is, is scared of fire. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I've, I've heard of folks having trouble with that. And uh, I've also heard some, you know, solution is to, you know, just see if the landowner will let you do a, a half acre spot uh, in a very mm-hmm. safe area and, and just slowly work your way towards them uh, trusting you more. Um, yeah. And then if no, you if you let the idea. you let the landowner know of the benefits that it's going to help their land uh, improve the recreational mm-hmm. value and the uh, probably the timber value someday, um, mm-hmm. it's a it's a win win. Um, yeah. It's unfortunate well, that some states seem to be more prohibitive. Um, I'm not sure which mm-hmm. those are, but you know I'll talk to people on the phone from time to time, and they'll be like, "Well, my." My state DNR kind of frowns on burning, and uh, yeah. I, I hate that. Uh, hopefully, yeah. we can press well, our uh, our legislatures and and uh, mm-hmm. and. So, Marcus, a uh, couple of quick questions uh, from from my end. Is there some gear, uh, you know, gear that you would recommend that everybody have? Is, is it uh, some special safety gear or anything? We want to make sure everybody has what they sure. need. Yeah, yeah. Well, the, you know, uh, there's a couple of things related to that. There, there are a bunch of tools that are a good idea to have, and some that are a- almost necessary that the average person can afford to to just have around. So, first thing would be some sort of protective clothing, and I'm talking about something that you know you could get a, a fire retardant clothing like Nomex. Uh, a lot of the the Folks that do a lot of prescribed burning will say you you get yellowed up. Well, they're talking about that the Nomex shirt is generally yellow, uh, so that's a that's a piece of protective clothing that's designed for for use of fire or wearing when when you're around fire. That uh, normally uh, that's a more specialized thing. A lot of these things are, I guess, uh, that you might get from from. Uh, forestry suppliers or a place like that that has some more 
you know, forestry specific supplies. Uh, so that clothing is a good idea. Having a good pair of leather gloves uh, is a good idea to protect your hands, of course. Uh, and footwear, same thing. Uh, in terms of hand tools, drip torch, that's one that, that is extremely useful. You can, you can accomplish burning without it, but it's, it's worth it to go ahead and, and, uh, spend a hundred or two hundred dollars to get a, a couple of good drip torches. And, and while you're there, absolutely. What is the ratio? Uh, how do, uh, you mix diesel and gasoline? What's the ratio there? Yeah. Well, that <laughs> it depends again. Uh, so that would range somewhere between 30% of, of uh, gasoline to 50%. And it, it, when you get to 50%, it's starting to get really volatile, and it, that's what it would be, a really hot torch. And some people like it to be a little on the hot end. If you add more gasoline than that, it starts getting, you start getting into some problems where the, the drip torch might spit or, or, uh, it might actually go out before it gets to the ground. You know, those kinds of issues can, can, uh, pop up. And if you get less gasoline than 30%, then you start having a little more problems with getting it to ignite. So somewhere in between those, I generally am a, in a, about at a 40, 60 ratio personally. <clears throat> so uh in terms of some of the other tools uh that of course the drip torch but also having a, a fire swatter that that's a good idea a shovel you know there's a couple of things like a shovel fire rake that you might already have something that'll work around the house that you're using for yard work uh having an axe or a chainsaw could be a good idea in terms of of uh some of the equipment I guess power equipment, it's a good idea to have a source of water. So uh, you may already have a, a sprayer that you could adapt to use that, or there are some, some types that you can fit on a, a, an ATV or a, a truck that's getting a little more expensive, or you can actually buy a water truck. And generally, those are uh, really expensive, and most people don't have that unless they are in some sort of cooperative like a prescribed burn association where they're sharing that cost amongst a bunch of people, uh, which can be a really effective way to get experience and, and have that kind of equipment available to you as well. So, uh, yeah, those are some general things that's a really good idea to have. Uh, a blower can be really effective, especially if you have a place where you need to put in a, a mineral soil fire break, but you can't get a tractor or ATV or, or so it's convenient to do that. The blower might be really helpful in those cases. Yeah, that's so, a good uh, yeah. So those are you know some things. Several of those you you might already have something that'll work around the house, but having those kinds of things on hand and having a, a person, you know, you generally don't want to be doing this by yourself. You know, so if you have a few other people with you, then then uh, we can all be assigned one of the tools. Yeah, you you, uh, you want a lanny with you. Have it you want. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And you want to build some fires. It'll it'll wear you out, you know. So when you you mentioned water, you you also need to bring water to drink. Um, yeah. And and yep. you know, anything you That's wear, right. you know, be prepared for it to get torn up. I always wear some older boots, you know, you getting all that mm -hmm. diesel and soot and you know. Uh, yeah. 
So and sometimes I, you'll, you'll just set your boot on fire, you know. But, so. yeah, and you, you've always <laughs> yeah, got you that g- guy that shows up with a bunch of synthetic clothes and rubber boots mm-hmm. on and stuff, and that's that's not good, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Yeah, yeah you yeah. definitely, if you don't get Nomex, you know, having wool or, or cotton, if you have to, those are better than uh, some of these other synthetic clothing. I was just going to say it's very active, so, you know, be prepared to be kind of running around and, you know, wear mm-hmm. appropriate clothing. Yeah, well, and that, uh, that, that, that becomes less convenient when it's during the summer, which is one reason we don't burn that much then, right? Because, sure. you know, in Mississippi, it's going to be 98 degrees. You don't want to be wearing all that mess. So I had a pair of uh, Bobby's great design on his new, uh, like, you know, briar pants. He loves to wear stuff like that. It looks like he's been quail hunting. <laughs> I don't recommend those because those are not those are nylon face, and mm-hmm. I burnt the front of them off of the first pair. I mean, I hadn't even worn them but one time, and <laughs> I seized the front of them. So don't try those. One other little thing I would uh, y'all y'all mentioned already: don't wear rubber boots. Pretty much, don't wear rubber boots. You can melt yeah. the bottom off of them, stuffing out a little grass spot. But uh, something y'all haven't mentioned, and a lot of people will use like the ATV is very useful especially if you have something on there to hang your grip torch on and mm-hmm. all but do not ever like cut across i know people and i know you do it marcus will lay a fire down or they have somebody sitting on the back of the atv laying a fire line down don't ever cut across through the woods doing that because if mm-hmm. anything happens to your four-wheeler and it shuts down or something happens you know you have whatever a fuel filter stops up anything could go wrong you're going to mm-hmm. lose that four-wheeler. You're going to have to end yeah. up, it'll, it'll blow up, you know. So always stay on, an, on a road and don't try to cut across through the woods on your four-wheeler is that, while a fire's burning. Is that one yeah, on four-wheeler? Because I've, I've known a couple people that have blown four-wheelers up or had to run them off in a lake to save them, you know. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I was going to say, it's uh, a personal a, experience. a bunch of burned-up ones, too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That sounded like uh, maybe that was the way you're saying, Dudley, the voice of experience. There. Yeah, 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 exactly. Have you ever burned a four wheeler up, Toxie? I have not. I have not because I have any. I heard enough stories. I've been always been very spooked about getting across. So no, not even close. Thank goodness. Mm. But um, I know, and actually, I know some people that Scott knows that uh, ran one off in a lake. You know, because especially when you're dealing with grass fires mm-hmm. uh, and wind chip, uh, you can get it. I mean, it could, you, you might think you're in great shape and that wind shift. And, you know, those wind shifts, especially the thermals around a hot fire, will change. And you oh, might yeah. have 10 minutes of the fire blowing the exact opposite direction of what you've got predicted that day. So you just, especially around grass fires with that kind of fuel, you need to be. Really yeah, it, it's important to be. All. It's important to be scared of fire when you're doing this. Yeah, appreciation You can get overconfident uh, after you've been doing it a few years and really mess up. Um, and I'd, I'd like to pitch a little story just to prove my point uh, that that it is mm-hmm. important to be scared of it. Um, my buddy Jack and I were burning and. Uh, in uh, actually in Yazoo County uh, one day, mm-hmm. and we thought we had contained it and decided to move on to another little island of pines and uh, light that fire. And we were there for a couple hours working it, and we're like, gosh, we're tired. We got that fire 
burn down. Let's go back to the house and get something to eat and something to drink. We come back to the house, and the previous, um, a, a pine that had been butt-scarred by some equipment mm-hmm. years ago that was sap all over the side of it, it was on the, on the fire, on the line of fire where we started it. Well, all that exposed wood and sap caught fire. The pine burned through and then fell over across the fire mm-hmm. lane and mm-hmm. got into some dead Bermuda grass, went underneath and like an agricultural diesel tank that had 500 gallons of diesel in it, underneath two vehicles, and then burned up to the slab of the house. And it's it's only by the mm-hmm. grace of God that something really bad didn't happen. And so yeah. things— There's enough to scare you. Right. So it, it is important to be paranoid. And and uh, yeah. and just yeah. think about the worst case scenario before you before you light that fire, and uh, and wait yeah. for yeah. wait until it's Great completely point. out before you move on. That's yeah. why it's great to have extra people. You know, extra people. So somebody is continuing. You know, if you'd have had a third or fourth person, then maybe that one stays back and keeps checking and keeps checking and keeps checking. I know when we set fires on some of our safest place as possible you know uh, 60% of the border because the way it curves is a river I mean it's so safe mm-hmm. but we go back and keep going back and keep going back and keep going back checking it again and again and again until it's gotten way off of the you know the fire lanes and everything having a healthy fear where it doesn't keep you from accomplishing your objectives but it keeps you safe that that's uh, where you want to be is in between those Indeed. There's the people I know that have gotten in trouble, and I don't know many, but I know a couple, have all been, like, really cocky. I know what I'm doing. I know what I'm doing. I've done this a million times, mm-hmm. you know, and they, they just weren't safe, and they got a little bit, you know, I, for lack of a better word, cocky. There's burning is no place for that. Mm-hmm. Well, guys, well, you know, talking about, sorry, one other thing, talking about something that kind of resonates with me that, uh, it's sort of similar to the the story that Dudley was telling us, you know, one of the things that opened my eyes is I've, I went back to check on a fire after, after the sun went down and particularly those snags, they'll be shooting embers. And of course you can see them when they're dark. Like you don't even realize how much stuff is going on in there that you're not, you may not even be aware of, which is the reason that you need to, you know, continually check back and make sure that everything is going right. That's right. That's good. That's a really good point. Well, guys, th- this has been fascinating, and we've been talking for a while. I know Marcus has got pl- the other things he needs to do, but does anybody else have any other questions? Lanny? I'm good. Yeah, yeah. Dudley? No, that was that was pretty conclusive. Toxie, you got anything else? No, I mean, it just – you know, the one thing overriding all of it, I just got off the subject, is the safety part. So, mm-hmm. you know, I encourage everybody to pick the right stuff that would really make a difference on your place and do it. But, I mean, you might start small and, you know, a good idea, maybe the first time you do it, if you don't have some really good natural fire breaks like a lake or a creek, mm-hmm. a big creek or something, you know, pick a day where there's a forecasted steady wind from the same direction, not a high wind. And maybe where you have a built fire break of some type, go ahead and get a double fire break, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and be super safe. Because, you know, with time, 
with experience, you learn, you get better, you get more comfortable at, you know, what can go wrong, what can't go wrong. But if you, if you've kind of, uh, planned ahead of time for the possibilities, you know, you can mitigate any kind of danger stuff, you know? Yeah. Well, don't, to, don't, don't take anything for granted. Yeah. To, to add on to that, you know, there, there are lots of opportunities for folks to get out and get some experience with other people that are really, that, that have a lot of experience. Of course, we've talked about the training, but, you know, uh, that was one of the things that uh, I think I talked about last time is uh, Alabama at that time was putting on a couple of learning burns that I knew about. Uh, th- those things are popping up and available all the time. And, uh, you know, folks are, are sharing about that on social media or on some of these websites we've talked about. There are opportunities for you to go and get some hands-on experience and, and start to get more comfortable so that you don't have to feel like you need to start all from scratch by yourself at your own place. Good point. Yeah, yeah, it is. So, Dr. Yeah. Marcus Lashley, you grew up in, uh, around Livingston, Alabama, which is one of our favorite places. So I wanted to say when, when you come back home <laughs> this spring and you're, the, you're there during turkey season, we would love to go turkey hunting with you. <laughs> oh, man. I would be all, all over that. <laughs> and I will be there during turkey season. Let's, we let's we could even – Bobby, are you – are you inviting him, or are you inviting yourself? No, I was I was <laughs> inviting ourselves. Inviting <laughs> well, we, you know, when you're not in town, we could we could hunt your place just to make sure nobody else is hunting it. Yeah, that's always so. good. Oh yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, probably right. won't find many around my place at the moment. But <laughs> good, an- good answer, Mar- Marcus. Marcus, Marcus, uh, I think a lot of you, and I just want to let you know, in the spirit of transparency, that you're talking to. Basically, Russian KGB agents when it comes to turkey season. So, trust no one. Oh, Marcus. Well, I, I just assumed that. Yeah. I just assumed yeah. it. That's a great assumption. Well, look, we've certainly enjoyed having you, Marcus. I want to make sure people listening, if they don't know, they can follow you at Dr. Disturbance. Dr. Yeah, Dr. Disturbance. Okay, yeah. yep. That, and that's uh, on all the social media platforms. And I also uh, am the director of the UF Deer Lab, and we have the at UF Deer Lab handle as well. So the University of Florida, there is a lot going on in the wildlife world down there. And, uh, and, yeah. and I think Marcus is plugged into all of it. And, and you know, it's all interrelated. The, the Mississippi State, mm-hmm. Tennessee, Marcus has got a great he's, – he's been all over. He's a super smart guy. We're just fortunate to get to be able to tap into you and have you on here from time to time, Marcus. And we're big fans. Yeah. And thanks for yeah, being well, here. I- Likewise, I really appreciate y'all having me on the show. It's been a lot of fun and looking forward to next time. Marcus, we're sorry it took so long to get you, but we sure enjoyed having you on here, and we will do this again. Yeah, well, I really appreciate it. Thanks, guys. Okay. Thanks, Marcus. All I right. hope I see you. Maybe, I hope I see you in the um, breakfast house somewhere in Livingston this spring because I'll, I'll for sure be down there. No doubt. Okay, well, I, I'll definitely be there in March. Make him buy you lunch, Marcus. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a good idea. All right, good to that's see. A, hey, that's a deal. That's a deal. See y'all. See y'all. Oh, I always enjoy talking to him. He's oh yeah, he's, oh, yeah. He's such real a, passionate. Yeah, our uh, and, and he's from here. You know, I just I feel like we already know him. But he's he seems so. I mean, he's so smart. He really is. You can tell. Listen to him. But he's very passionate about the disturbance 
ecology, I think is the way it's mm-hmm. referred to. Yeah, and he, he knows all the plants. Uh, my, my first experience with Marcus was uh, he was a new professor here, and uh, uh, he had his class come to the nursery one day, and we walked around and looked at looked at the nursery. And then we went out to the uh, what's called the 16th section prairie, where a, a lot of professors uh, lease this land because it's a, a very rare prairie. And we walked around and, and he identified plants and uh, students were, were getting samples for their leaf collections and all that stuff. And I was really impressed with all the oddball grasses and other, other species he knew the name of. Hmm. Yeah, I bet he did. So, well, look, uh, before we close out, uh, we always like to say, what do we learn? And then there's so much in this one that that, that whole the relative humidity thing. You know, I was oh, yeah. very curious about that, and I was surprised that it was as high as it was. Mm-hmm. I was actually surprised it was that low. So, oh, oh really? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Is Toxie still on here? Nope. Hung up oh, we lost him. Okay. Well, so D- D- Dudley, was there something that stood out that he said that you? Kind of hard to teach you something. Else. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, um, but I, I really enjoyed it, and I, I hope our listeners learned a lot. Uh, if you if you guys have any questions about what we talked about, don't don't hesitate to give us a shout or throw us an email. Yeah, Lanny, do you have a? Uh, man, just fire. You know, every time the more we learn about it, the more beneficial it is not only to wildlife but to timber to to biodiversity. Uh, what we're all after um, in the future. So. Uh, don't be scared of it. It's a amazing tool. Um, be careful, obviously. Yeah, do your homework. Do your homework. Uh, but it's an amazing tool, amazingly fun, and amazingly efficient, too. So. Yeah, it is. It sure is. And it, yeah. it, it, it will beautify a place. Yeah, it's nothing like a, a, a burned stand of pines. It really is. Especially in the spring. So one of the things I want to mention, we're wrapping up, we're closing out, but um, – Guys, we really would appreciate y'all giving us a review, yeah. an honest review, if you like it or you don't like it or whatever. But I was going to point out, we had a review last week by a lady. And I didn't even know we had a lady listening to the podcast. There's lady gamekeepers out there well, everywhere. I, I, you know, I, I, Brenda Valentine. Well, yeah, that's house. true. I mean, she is. But this lady keeper. said, uh, I'm not really a hunter anymore, and I am female, but I love this podcast. They make me LOL daily and AMP. And, Lane, I wanted to ask you, what is AMP? An AMP. It says they make me LOL daily in AMP. I learn stuff being a landowner. Thank y'all. And her name was Dixie Bell. But I just didn't I didn't know what AMP meant. You know? I mean, I'm always amped up, but I don't know. Yeah. Well, these young kids have these new words. Like I'm not young. Sam told me the other day I was dripping. And I didn't know what that meant. No, he's talking about <laughs> your drip. Yeah. I'm dripped. Oh, no, is that what I You're drip. Oh, I'm true. Yeah, I got confused on all that. So right, anyway, but uh, Dixie, thank you. I'm going to send Dixie. If you would reach back out to us, uh, we'll send you a, a levy sling, oh, a gamekeeper go. levy sling. For, and anybody that does a review, we'll call them out occasionally. Y'all, we'd appreciate that. So look, I don't think there's anything else to say. You got anything, Lanny? I always got something to say, but that's enough today. Well, we got a lot of cleaning up to do that's around right. here. There's yeah. a lot still stuff to do. I'm moving on to your office next. <laughs> yeah, that'd be fun. <laughs> Dudley, what about you? Anything? No. Okay. I'm, I'm ready to get back to the uh, grind and say goodbye. Yeah. All right. Well, say goodbye, Dudley. Goodbye, Dudley. Get us out of here, Richie. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Gamekeeper Podcast. And be sure to tune in again. Subscribe to Gamekeeper Farming for Wildlife magazine. And don't miss the Mossy Oak Properties Fistful of Dirt podcast with my good buddy, Ronnie Cuz Strickland. <laughs>